Thank you for listening to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. And today we want to be in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 has sometimes been viewed as two different psalms because verses 1 through 6 sound a strong note of confidence and praise, and verses 7 through 14 sound more like an individual lament. I don't believe that this is two different psalms. I believe that these parts were put together for a purpose. And there is common vocabulary shared between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 14. But we do want to cover these in parts today. First of all, let's read verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this I will be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. These words are words of strong confidence. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Though the term light is often associated with God, this is the only time in the Old Testament that the Lord is specifically said to be my light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now, verse 9 will also speak of God as the God of my salvation, a common link between the earlier part of the psalm and the latter part. But understanding who the Lord is, that He is my light and my salvation, the question is, whom shall I fear? The second description of God in verse 1 is that God is the defense of my life. The word translated defense can be translated stronghold. It can be translated refuge. The Lord is my stronghold. He is my refuge. He is my defense. Whom shall I dread? Understanding who God is. Understanding He is the creator of heavens and the earth. He is the one who sovereignly reigns over history. What should we ever fear? I believe those words are true. I'm confident you believe those words are true. Do you have trouble practicing them? The very 
fact that these words are uttered show that there are circumstances that we face that can be terrifying. There are circumstances that can lead us to fear. But the alternative to fear is an understanding of who God is. In verses 2 and 3, scenarios are painted that seem terrifying. And yet the writer will affirm his trust in God. When evildoers came to devour my flesh. Remember Psalm 14 verse 4. Talk about some who eat up my people as they eat up bread. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh. My adversaries and my enemies. They stumbled and fail. Ultimately, the plots and plans laid against David will cause the undoing of his enemies, not his own undoing. It is they who will stumble and fall. In verse 3, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear, though war arise against me. These are horrible scenarios. A whole host of an army, a war arising against David. And yet, in spite of all of this, my heart will not fear and I will be confident. These are bold statements of assurance in God. And again, this is not to stress that any of us practice this perfectly. But it is a statement that in times when we face a crisis, it is the Lord, the God of our salvation, and the God who is our light, who can give us hope in the midst of a world of confusion. In verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. As one writer puts it, there are other requests in this psalm. So how could he say one thing I ask? He can say this because this is the thing that he desires above all other things. This is a statement of purpose. Like Jesus told Mary and Martha, one thing is needful in Luke 10, verses 41 and 42. And here in this passage, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. The thing that he desired above all other things is to be in God's presence, to be in God's fellowship, to walk with him, to be his people. It is a theme that has been emphasized regularly in the last few Psalms. In Psalm 23 in verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 26 verse 8, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. One thing I have asked 
and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate, to meditate in his temple. And this God, who he desires fellowship with, this God is able to shelter him, to shield him in the day of trouble. In verse 5, in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret places of his tent, he will hide me. Now, part of the vocabulary links between the earlier part of the psalm and the latter part of the psalm is shown here. In verse 5, he begs God in the day of trouble to hide him, to protect him in the secret places. But this word hide is used again in verse 9. The God who can hide him and shelter him from harm in verse 5 is a God that he begs, do not hide your face from me. In verse 9, do not hide your face from me. And in verse 5, he says, he will lift me up on a rock. And in verse 6, and now my head will be lifted above my enemies. Often heads were lifted up after military victory and they were, and they hung down after military defeat. You see that kind of language in Judges 8, 28 and Zechariah 1 in verse 21 the point is God will lift him up to a rock, to a place of shelter and safety away from trouble. And all of this leads the psalmist to offer shouts to God and sacrifices to him. Now let's read verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my God, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. So there is a plea that the Lord hear his cry in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be gracious, be gracious to me and answer me. You notice in verses 8 and 9 that there are three uses of the word seek and three references to God's presence or God's face. The first seems as if God is making an appeal to seek my face. And the answer of David is, I will seek your face. And verse 9 is a plea that God does not hide his face from me. But in these verses, you see uh, these words appear 
um, regularly. Uh, do not hide your face. Uh, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, and the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That kind of language is used in Psalm 67, verse 1. For the Lord to shine his face upon us is that he blesses us with every good thing. And the Bible is begging the Lord not to hide his face. The God who has been our help in verse 9, just like he is our salvation in verse 1 and verse 9, he is our light in verse 1. He is our help in verse 9. He begs him, do not abandon me, nor forsake me. In verse in verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. The father and mother are mentioned here, not in the sense that David is literally experiencing being abandoned by parents, but I think this is an illustration that these are the most unconditional sources of love we can find. But they will fail before God's love will fail. Zion accused the Lord of forsaking her, of forgetting her, in Isaiah 49, verse 14. But the Lord states that a mother is more likely to forget her newborn child than God is to forget his city and his people. That's Isaiah 49, verse 15. When we read the words of the prodigal son coming home and the father running to greet him, as powerful as those words are to describe the love and the compassion of God, they are inadequate because none of us has the love to give that God does. And even a father and mother's love is inadequate to describe the love of God. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. It's interesting in Proverbs 4 and in Proverbs 6, these words to teach and to lead are both used of a parent's relationship to his child. And as God has taken us up, has gathered us into his family, God now will teach and God will lead. And the Bible begs God in verse 12, Psalm 27, 12, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against him. He faces real difficult circumstances, and he begs God, who is his light, who is his salvation, who is his help, he begs God to deliver him as he knows God is capable of doing. In verses 13 and 14, 
If you have a New American Standard Bible, you notice that many of the words here are in italics, indicating they're not in the original text. If we just read the words that are not italicized, it says, Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, often a statement like this, unless I had believed, I had seen the Lord, it is preceded by some kind of an if statement, then or unless I had seen it, I would not have done a certain thing. I'm not expressing myself as well, but it seems like in verse 13, it's very difficult reading. And even Jewish scribes who copied the text indicated that in the text. But he is confident he will see God's goodness in the land of the living. The land of the living is used 15 times in the Old Testament. Quite frequently in Ezekiel 32, it's used by Hezekiah after he is told that he'll live 15 more years in Isaiah 38 and verse 11. But the idea is he believes he will see the goodness of God in this world. And he said, wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. An appeal often made in the book of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. And whether it is waiting on the Lord in the normal circumstances of life, or whether it is fighting an army that's stronger and mightier than we are, it still takes us to be strong and courageous. To be strong and courageous. To wait upon God. To give His deliverance in His time. That takes courage. Now there's more we could say about Psalm 27. And I beg you to keep carefully examining that text. Carefully examining those words. But I want us to see how Jesus fulfills the words of Psalm 27. It says, The Lord is my light. Remember it was said of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.4 Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 8, in verse 12, He truly is our light, and He is our salvation. He is our salvation. And just as the psalmist begs God in Psalm 27, verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me, just as he pleads for God to listen to his cry. So, Jesus offered up strong crying and tears to the one able to save him. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Just as this writer says false witnesses have risen against him, Jesus could say the same in his trial. I want you to notice this. We have applied statements 
from verses 7 through 12 that describe the innocent or righteous sufferer, we have applied these statements from this psalm to Jesus. But we have also applied the statements in the psalm in verse 1 and verse 9 that apply to God. We have applied those to Jesus. Jesus is both the innocent sufferer of the book of Psalms and the God who vindicates him. One other passage that I want to notice before we finish. In Psalm 27, verse 2, When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Psalm 27, verse 2, indicates that in coming against David, it will ultimately be not David's undoing, but the undoing of his foes. So this same thing is true about Jesus. When Jesus is opposed, and Jesus is maligned, and Jesus is crucified, ultimately, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus were the undoing of his enemies. When they arose against him, it was they who stumbled and fell. May the Lord bless you and keep you.